0: Alrighty, Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19 is where we're going to be in God's Word this morning. Last week we looked at doing everything, whether it be word or deed, all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we looked at was how that means is you do it under His authority, and you do it for His glory. And what we see is that Paul, in Colossians, after stating that, is he's going to spend pretty much the rest of the book articulating specific ways and providing biblical wisdom and biblical principles as to how we glorify God in the various roles of our lives. So we look at marriage and children and being a a boss and being an employee over the next couple weeks, But This morning we come to marriage for the glory of God, being married in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's hear what God's Word has to tell us about marriage. Verses 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This ends the reading of God's Word from Colossians 3. And that doesn't give us a whole lot to work with, does it? Um, But there's clearer passages, fortunately, in the Scriptures. And one of the uh, principles of interpretation in understanding the Bible and articulating that the truth of the Scriptures is that you interpret Scripture or expound upon Scripture with Scripture. And fortunately, there's another book written by Paul, another letter known as Ephesians, where Paul addresses this topic in very similar tones, but expounds upon it significantly. And that's where we'll go as well this morning. Uh, In fact, Paul, we can perhaps even assume that the letter to the church in Ephesus, the Ephesians, was a circular letter. In fact, he may have assumed that in Colossians, that the church of Colossae already had the church that was the letter written to the church of Ephesus, and therefore, um, that was the reason for the brevity of his words here. But turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 33, and there you'll find a parallel text. Not only does it parallel this in marriage, but it also you'll find that it parallels what has preceded uh, the same things we've discussed in Colossians chapter 3. You'll find a lot of similarities here. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 33. And do, pick up verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Sounds familiar, right? Giving thanks, as always, and for everything, to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, so he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And he who for he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. And because we are members of his body, therefore, and this is quoting from Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This ends the reading of God's holy and infallible words. A couple things to address right at the forefront. I'll just say this. I'm 34 years old, and I've read widely on marriage, but I haven't been married all that long. What am I, eight years um, I should know that, right? If I'm going to say it publicly. Uh, and if my wife's in the room. Um, you see, the inexperience. So any wisdom that I have this morning is from any number of people, probably, than my own. In particular, three men. I, I almost got to get to the point where it's, if I name them all the time, I'll just end up naming people that I'm quoting. But three people, Tim Keller has given a significant amount of principles to me in regards to marriage. Ray Cortese much wisdom, and my own father as well, who I gleaned much from this past week and the last couple weeks in getting ready for this. Uh, Second, if you're single this morning, I'm going to say this as we address this, is that uh, we're going to address marriage, and because there's so much to cover here this morning, I will not be able to address, uh, apply this specifically to you in very many ways, but let me say this, is that this is extremely applicable to you because we're going to set the vision and the principles and what we're going to believe marriage is in God's sight and what it ought to be. And what you believe and how, what your vision for what marriage is will determine who it is that you marry, the type of person that you seek out, and in fact, the type of person that you're preparing yourself to be in order to be married. And so it's deeply applicable for your life, yes, even for you who are 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. You're singles too. And you're getting ready, Lord willing, the Lord is to provide you a spouse one day. Third, we, we cannot even begin to cover everything in this text. I'm not even going to try. We're going to hit things pretty, uh, principally this morning. I'm going to hit a few things on the design of marriage. But we're going to, we're going to, and we're going to take a time. It's going to take a long time to get through this. I'm going to try to hit as much as I can. But there, this is only the beginning of what can be said about this topic. There is no end to the amount of books conferences and sermons that have been written on this topic and it is it is it is for good reason there is nothing that can bring more joy into your life nor or more sorrow into your life than marriage marriage in fact it is uh it's a a watershed moment for so many people i'm uh, counseling five different couples right now through, through through premarital counseling so be aware of that, you married folks. That there's lots of young marrieds around here. Also be aware of this. For those of you who are married, one last comment before we get started is this. As married people, we get so busy with our commitments. And once we have children in particular, that even at church, we become to have tunnel vision. We have singles everywhere in this church. I don't know what's happened in the last couple of years, but 23, 24, 25-year-olds are just crawling out the yin-yang here. Be aware of this that they are worthy of incredible honor, that we should, that they, like, we, we value singles, and we will speak to you specifically here in the near future. Uh, and, and, and But married folks, please, this is not just for you. Please be aware of those around here who are not married and how you speak and the assumptions that we make. All right, we're going to go. This, this is how we're going to go this morning. We're hit first. We're going to hit some principles, some kind of overarching meta principles. I'm mean, only going to get three. There's many more that we could say are foundational principles for marriage. First, but we're going to start there. Three principles for marriage. Second, we're going to hit on the, the design or the roles of marriage, and then finally we'll end on looking at the power uh, for marriage. So three principles this morning. First and foremost, the first principle is this: the essence of marriage is a promise. If you ask yourself this question, what is marriage? The answer is it's a, it is a promise. It is a promise that binds two people together. And therefore, by in that, it's a promise. It's both relational and it's legal, which those two things combine are how we understand and define a covenant. Marriage is covenantal by design. It is a relational contract. And it is the means by which, by this covenant, the two people become one flesh. They are bound together. In marriage, in a wedding, you are not declaring that you love the person that you're marrying. You're not declaring, nor are you declaring that you promise to remain together. In fact, perhaps, perhaps very particularly, you're not declaring that, that you're going to remain together as long as you love one another. William Bennett, who is a significant voice in the Christian world in the 80s and the 90s, perhaps most famously for writing, writing the book of Virtues, writes of attending a wedding in which the vows between the bride and the groom went like this. They pledged to remain together as long as love shall last. Bennett said, I sent them paper plates as a wedding gift. Listen, it, romance is wonderful, and the feeling and affection that comes with, with, with romance is great, but frankly, it will not sustain your marriage. It will not sustain a relationship through the thick and thin that comes with a marriage. There will come a day, maybe sooner or later, or maybe it's come for many of you, if you've been married for very long, in which you'll wake up, your eyes will pop open, you'll look across the person in the bed with you, and you'll go, oh no. That might actually happen on the flight to your honeymoon. Literally, I'm serious, this is something that those who do premarital counseling should should address with people. Is there is often immediate buyer's remorse when you get when you get married, and so when you when you get married in your wedding day, it is not a promise that you will feel loving towards somebody, or even that you will it, you, you'll that you'll stay, it's, you're, you're staying that you're gonna you're gonna love them forever no matter what. So you're gonna carry out the duty that God has given you. You see, this goes against the very, some of the arguments that people have against marriage in our day and age. Well, someone could say, I love this person. Why do I need a piece of paper to show this person my love? Well, they missed the point of what love is and even missed the point of what marriage is. It's that marriage is a promise to be there, not today on your wedding day, but a promise to be there in the future, no matter what. It's a promise. It's saying, it's saying I'm putting on my calendar in two weeks, in two years, and 20 years, and in 50 years, that I am going to be there. I am not going anywhere, no matter what. It's permanence. It is a permanent promise, and it is till death. In this marriage covenant, this promise is the context by which two people become one flesh. We leave and we cleave, it says in Genesis. We leave our families and we cleave together so that we are united by this promise, melded together so that we are melded together emotionally and socially and sexually. We meld our lives together, our finances, every Part of it. And by the way, this is why sex outside of the bounds of marriage is illegitimate in God's eyes. Because it is meant to be the, both the consummation and the symbol of that promise. And then whenever it occurs in the marriage, it is covenant renewal. You've heard of makeup sex, that is legitimate, it's called covenant reaffirmation. It's called covenant renewal. You're saying, I am not going anywhere, and we experience once again, we are restored to the high point of intimacy between us. This is why if you haven't made the promise, it is illegitimate to take part in the consummation or the renewal when the promise isn't there. That's principle one. Principle two is this, the purpose of marriage. The principle or the purpose of marriage is gospel reenactment. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and did what? Gave himself up for her. For what purpose? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. The gospel message is this. Tim Keller says, the gospel is that Jesus stuck, saw us stuck in our human condition. Broken and nasty. And so he comes into our lives and lays himself out sacrificially. And as a result of his sacrificial ministry to us, we become gloriously beautiful. We become radiant in God's sight. This is the gospel story. And this is what you're to do for your spouse. That marriage, the purpose of marriage is before the world to lay down your life in ministry for the purpose of pursuing the future glory self of your spouse. That on on the day in which Christ returns, it is not only yourself that you're concerned about and how you appear in God's eyes, but you also present your spouse to them just as Jesus does the church to God the Father and to himself and says, this is my radiant spouse. And so it is that you are to do that as well. And the world is to see this practice, this drama unfold, to see you love an unfaithful and yes, unworthy spouse and to lay your life down for them ...for their ultimate goods. That's the second principle. The third principle that undergirds both of these is this. The design of marriage is established by God. This means that God, God's the one who came up with marriage. God made marriage. God gave us marriage. God's the one who, who dictates the structure, the roles, and the design of marriage. Marriage did not begin with two K people beating rocks together, suddenly looking up and saying, you, me, how about it? That's not how it came about. It is not a socially constructed relationship. It is given by God. And he's the one who has authority over it. He is the architect and the designer. And we have broken it, haven't we? If we are going to make any kind of sense out of marriage then we must go back to God's design of how he has established and ordained marriage to work. Have you ever tried? Have you, well, my wife and I are pretty young, and so we buy cheap furniture from Ikea. Have you ever tried to put Ikea furniture together without instructions? It's impossible. It's barely possible with the instructions. And marriage is barely possible with the instructions from God's word. It's doubly impossible if you do it without it. But so much of the case is that we have made a mockery of marriage, haven't we? Let me say this as an aside. and I don't have time to get into this too much. But one of the great debates of us, obviously culturally right now, is the issue of gay marriage. That in some ways, it's, an, it's a separate, what's going on civilly in our country. It's not separate, but in some ways it is. In that the Bible, God defines what marriage is. Marriage is before God. Therefore, the government can't touch your marriage, ultimately. Slaves used to get married simply by jumping over a broom, and they would make a promise. They didn't need the government involved in their marriage. The government doesn't get to dictate whether you're married or not. There are some legal ramifications of it, but marriage, as we see it, as its essence, is a lifelong promise to one another, and we can do that without the government's intervention into it. So I don't know how Christians take biblical ethics And push it into our our civil issues in a pluralistic society that's a difficult, more nuanced uh, uh, discussion for another day. But God's definition that if you're a Christian, the definition of the Bible, the design of it is one man, one woman forever. That's the design of it. And yet we have made a complete mockery of marriage. And in fact, in the arguments of those in the last 30 or 40 years who would be proponents for gay marriage have pointed to the fact in which the church, yes, heterosexuals in our one-man, one-woman marriages have made a mockery of marriage. We say, hey, you're going to destroy the sanctity of marriage, and they're going to say, you already have. Touche. It's very true. We have made marriage stink because we have rejected God's design for marriage, we've rejected God's roles for marriage, we've rejected God's purposes for marriage. And so what we need to do is go back. Go back and restore the old design for marriage. Not the 40s and 50s. Not Ozzy and Harriet. Not the the 40s and 50s. You know what those marriages produced? The 60s and the 70s. I would say the fruit of those marriages was not something to write home about. We need something better to go back to in the design of our forebears. we need to go back to what God has given us. And what we see is God has given us within, What we'll be able to focus this morning uh, simply is on the roles of marriage within God's design. So that's point two, the roles in marriage that each of us carry, husbands and wives. First, we'll begin with the wife. So there in Colossians three, eighteen: 18, wives, submit to your husbands in the Lord." The role of the wife, this is a propositional statement, the role of the wife is as a helper. And the calling of the wife in carrying out that role is to take up a position of subordination and submission. Dun, dun, dun. Right? When we hear the word submission, the baggage is weighty with that word. There is cultural baggage. There's personal baggage. There's church baggage that comes with that. So let me give some correctives this morning on what submission means. First, maybe four, First, submission is something a wife gives, not something a husband can demand. Did you hear that, husbands? The verb translated submit in the Greek is hopotasso, which carries with it the implication of voluntary yieldedness to a recognized authority. Men, we, we may, God may call us to be the leader, and we'll look at that later. But it is not your right to demand submission from your wife. And in fact, dare I say that you can't. You are not able. Submission, as we'll look at in just a minute for the wife, is in the end a disposition, a heart disposition towards some authority, and it's a posture in her life. She may go along with your decision, but she may not agree with it, and she may not submit to it in her heart of hearts. What we see is that Christ, even revealing to us what submission looks like, we read this earlier in Philippians 2, did the father remove something from the son? No, it says that the son emptied himself. The son's the one who lays down his life. And so it is, husbands, we don't demand it of our wives. Wives, it is the calling of you to lay it down before before your spouse. Second, submission does not mean that a wife is obligated to follow her husband if he were to be leading her into sin. You know, there's the principle, and we talk about it often in regards to Christians and civil uh, disobedience, whether we follow the government when they're calling us to sin. And the the, the scripture ethic is you follow man, or you follow God, not man. And the same goes for the wife, that when her husband calls her to do something that is blatantly, and directly in disobedience, that she is to follow God, not her husband. Now, here at Wise, I want to hedge on this and say this. It better be a clearly defined command that your husband is calling you to disobey not some wisdom principle that you have gleaned from scripture or some multiple ethical declension that moves way out from what scripture states. You need to declare very be able to see very clearly that God has declared that I not engage in this behavior. Third, submission does not mean silence on the part of the wife. A wife is not displaying a lack of submission if she criticizes or corrects her husband. In fact, it may be very much in line with her role as a helper to provide constructive feedback and criticism in a a loving and motivated sort of way. Corrective in nature is appropriate. Second, a wife, in, in speaking up, can share her requests and her desires. And let me say this, and maybe I'll repeat this later on, but husbands, I believe that submission ultimately means the wife acquiesces to the final decision of the, hub, of the husband and submits herself to it. The husband, husbands, probably 99% of the time, God has given your wife there as a helper, and you should listen to her. You should listen to her. Listen to her desires and her requests. Third, a wife can even teach her husband's. We even see evidence in the New Testament where women are involved along with their husbands and doing discipleship of men. My wife has taught me much, and if you're honest, men, you'll agree with that as well. Wives can teach their husbands something. They have much to tell us in many, many areas of life. Fourth, submission does not mean that there is a simplistic set of rules in living out the gender design for our roles. Scripture is pretty generic and pretty, or pretty general and basic in its commands. The husband is the head and the leader. The wife submits to his leadership. But those are pretty broad in general. And there are ways in which Christians often have made mistakes in being too conservative. And conservative in the, try to undo the political baggage from that word. Conservative in which they have conserved things that are cultural in nature that they ought not be conserving. Or promote things as being biblical marriage or biblical submission that are not actually in line with scripture. The Bible never says anywhere that women ought to be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. It doesn't say anywhere that women cannot go out into the workplace. In fact, it doesn't even say anywhere that women should even be the primary breadwinner. What it says is that men are responsible. So I ask you, men, are you should you be the primary breadwinner? Not necessarily. But the issue is the nourishment and the provision of your family is ultimately your responsibility, but you have a teammate. And if your teammate makes more money than you, that's okay. If you have a teacher that makes $40,000, and he's the husband, and if the wife is a brain surgeon and she makes $400,000, it is not disobedient for the wife to go work. That is not contrary to God's word. That is culturally demanded and relegated means in which people thought in their wisdom to try to apply scriptures, but it's become law when it doesn't say it anywhere in scriptures. In fact, I think it says some things quite the opposite. For the most part in human history, we found both the husband and the wife work outside the house. You know what it was called? A farm. They'd step outside the door and they'd both go to work. Proverbs 31 woman. You know, the the wonderful woman that is proclaimed as the great woman of scripture. What does she do? We see that she is an industrious woman involved in the city center in business, selling her wares. Let's not make rules that are not there. Let's not let some culture, either in the past or even now, determine what is obedience. God's word has given us a responsibility, men, to lead our families, but he has given us an incredible teammates, an incredible teammates, set her free very often to carry out her gifts. What does submission mean? Those are some correctives. First submission is the disposition by the wife to honor and affirm her husband's authority, and it's an inclination to embrace his leadership. Which means, even while the husband's inclination is to listen to his wife and to agree with her in his, in his decision-making, that it's the wife's inclination to think before she constantly before she criticizes and, and, and goes against his decisions and speaks against it. But this, this foundational principle is what submission is. This inclination this posture of honoring and affirming her husband's leadership comes under her, her submission to God's authority. You see in Colossians 3.18, as, as, as it is fitting in the Lord, that submission is fundamentally for the wife. As an act, as submission to the husband is an act of her submission to her gods. God has not asked women to submit to their husbands because they're inferior, because they're less intelligent. In many ways, it is, it's not the case at all. Their wives may have many more gifts than their husbands. But God has said it is fitting in the kingdom that I, in the economy that I have established in my kingdom, that the husband has leadership and headship in the home, and the wife, in submission to God, submits to the husbands. And very practically speaking, I've mentioned this twice before. But practically speaking, that means that she submits; she submits to his final call on decisions when there's disagreements. Now, for many of you, maybe. There, you hear those, even with those correctives and those clarifications of biblical submission, you find that concept of submission utterly appalling. You can just feel the tension in the room when you, when you hear the words, why submit? It's like you just kind of feel the angst. Well, there's two, there's two particular disagreements, I think, or arguments, and I'm going to try to answer both of them. The first argument is this, against submission, is that it's culturally regressive, how can you, in the 21st century, how dare can you say that a wife is supposed to submit to her husband? Well, I, I don't, cultural regression, I, that's, that's a difficult thing to define. But I do know this, is that it is countercultural. But God has never seemed to worry about being countercultural. And in fact, when he gave these principles, they were enormously countercultural. They were, the people, when Paul wrote this to the Colossian church in the ancient Near East, they didn't receive this and go, oh yeah, we totally live like this. This is a culture in which women are treated like slaves, in which their man's, their husband's property, in which men can have all sorts of lovers, and the wives can be dropped at the drop of a hat. They can be sent away without money or provision. They were essentially, they could be abused without any recourse whatsoever. This is how women were treated. And to this culture, culture, Paul says, husbands, lay down your your life for your wives. That's countercultural. You see, God's word is not worried about being... (laughs) in line with any culture in which it speaks into. It's worried about being in line with the culture of God's kingdom. And so yes, it's countercultural. Whether it's culturally regressive or progressive, I don't really care. I don't think the scriptures care. It calls out the various issues that every culture seems to have. The second argument is this, that this might be demeaning for women to have to submit. It essentially, what, the, what it says is that this, this treats women as lesser than men. But I simply would say that's not the case because the greatest paradigm we have for submission is from Jesus. It is in this this way that men and women both actually reflect the mysteries of God. We often hear it stated, as it is in Ephesians 5, that men reflect Jesus' work as laying down their life for their wives, as Christ laid down his life for the church. But women have a role here as well. Women reflect the submissive work of Jesus to the Father. Here's some Trinitarian theology for you. I'm going to use a big word for a second. The Son and the Father are ontologically equal. That means in their essence and their substance they are equal, equal in power and glory, but their economically how they live out their, their equality is in a different is in different functions. The son functions as subordinate to the father. And so the father sends the son to lay down his life. And the son is obedient to the father, despite the fact that he is equal to him in essence and in substance. This is, again, what we saw in Philippians 2. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. It assumes there he has equality with God. He doesn't cling to it, but submits himself and subordinates himself to God the father. Kathy Keller, who's an academic, Tim Keller's wife, she, was, she is a, a doctorate. She's a very intelligent woman who wrestled and struggled with this idea of women's subordination. Said so she finally came to this conclusion when studying the Trinity. And she said this, if submission or subordination is not an assault on the dignity and value of Jesus, the great I am, the son of God, to take the subordinate role to his father in order to accomplish our salvation, How on earth can I be hurt or devalued when I am asked to take the subordinate role in my marriage? She's essentially saying, if Jesus is willing, the Son of God is willing to submit, who am I to not be willing to submit as well? We also want to answer this larger issue, that this makes women inferior to men, but we also point to the greater role. I said earlier that the, the greater the role proposition in the scriptures is the wife is the helper of the husband. Genesis 2.18, when God made woman, he said this, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Eve was declared as the helper to Adam. And the concept of the wife being the helper of the husband in no way implies inferiority. In fact, it might imply quite the opposite. You see, the Hebrew word for helper was azair. And the, uh, the other person most often described as azer, which means help, is God himself. In the Old Testament, over and over and over again, God is called our azer, our help. Far from being a position of inferiority, the person who comes in as the helper comes in in a position of strength, not of weakness. Over and over again, where we see that God is the helper is that when his people are crying out in battle and need his help, when they are needing his provision, that they are wanting in some way, shape, or form, and God is the helper provides. And in that way, the woman in this world, in her femininity, in her womanhood, and in the marriage symbolizes and, and communicates attributes of who God is, that he is our help. And he comes with great strength. That's the role of a helper, to come with strength. And so let me apply this very briefly for you, wives. Wives, do you have any concept of the power that you have to make or break your husband? God has called your husband to be a leader, and it is a terrible burden. Leadership on any level is exhausting. It is difficult. It is, you have rocks thrown at you. You would feel the weight of the responsibility of the decisions that you are making. It is exhausting in every way, shape, or form. And the woman is to use all her gifts to contribute to her husband as a leader, to help him be a good leader. Now, listen, wives, your husband may not be a very good leader. He probably isn't a good leader. Oh, how about this? He's not a good leader. He's not a good leader, but you can really help him. That's what God has called you to be. Not to tear him down, not to crush him when he's failed, but to promote him and support him and care for him, even in his neediness. You were created because he is needy, because there is something wanting in him. The wise woman knows the damage that she can create with a cutting remark or a needless critique, a reminder of her husband's failure. She can diminish her husband. Too many of you are emasculating your husband's. And by doing so publicly before your sons, you're emasculating them as well. Wives, you have incredible power to be of great help. Evie Hill, who was a fairly well-known and provident evangelistic preacher in the later part of the 20th century, at his wife's funeral, shared a story about how his wife helped him. He's sharing a very eulogy, and there he tells a story about how he and his wife, when they met, that she came from great wealth. Her, her dad was a college professor and, and college uh, president, actually, was of means. They hobnobbed with, with wealthy people and powerful people. Uh, she got to travel all over the world, go to great schools. And Evie was from a poor family from West Texas and was now running a small nonprofit as a pastor in a struggling church when they got married. He said one night early on in their marriage, he came home one day and there was candles lit everywhere in the house. And he said, ooh, this is nice. So he went into the bathroom, and he went to flick on the the lights to wash his hands, and nothing came on. And he walked out of the bathroom, and he said to his wife, we don't have any power, do we? At that, she began to cry. She said, sweetheart, you work so hard, and you do everything you can for our family to provide, but we ran out of money, and I couldn't pay the power bill, and they turned off our power. At this, at his wife's funeral, he began to cry, and he says, he said this, my baby my baby, she could have ruined me, but instead she said, let's eat by candlelight. She could have crushed me, but instead she romanced me. The strength and power of a wife when her husband is down, you have the power to build him up, to help him even in his weakest moment, the role of the wife, the role of the husband. Ephesians 5, 23, 25 through 29. I'll just read briefly here. Few verses. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. We'll finish there. A husband is given the role of a leader in the marriage. This is a proposition. He has the role of leader, but his calling in that role is to lay down his life for the good of his wife and his family. The husband has been given headship or leadership of the marriage. But he has not given this as a right, but as a responsibility to bear up under it. You are called to fully surrender yourself in your leadership position, husbands, to serve your wife for her good. Husbands, your headship and your love of your wife, they cannot be separated from one another. Too often we have husbands who are, who are running away from their role as leaders. If you are just acquiesce leadership to your wife, then all the love you give to her is mere sentimentalism. It isn't, you're not living into what God has called you to be. But if you take up headship without the context of and the ministry of love for her, then you are entering into cruel tyranny. So you either have cruel tyranny or cruel apathy is the husbands that we so often see. You know, the cruel tyranny husband, they're fairly obvious to see, right? They're controlling, domineering, they put all the stress on their wife, they're aggressive, demanding, and very often they're abusive. Physically, emotionally, and yes, even sexually. And dare I say, brothers, there are certain elements of the church that because of this teaching on submission, that there are men's, men whose proclivity has been encouraged by this teaching of submission, and they have used it to the death of their wives. Authoritarian husbands, and you can see them. You can see them. I grew up watching them. As a homeschool kid, homeschool fathers, love they love to homeschool. They love things under the authority and control. And this isn't a critique of homeschooling. We are homeschooling our kids. But there is actually, there is a proclivity. There is something that we, about the Christian, that so often it draws men who like to control things. We like things neat and pretty. Be careful, men. This is a proclivity even for the Christian man. But headship is never portrayed in Scripture as being used for this reason. It is never used for self-satisfaction. It is never, it is for your wife's glory, for God's glory, for your wife's good. I can't think of a more horrendous exploitation, Defamation of the gospel than a husband who uses his leadership position to run his little fiefdom and abuse his wife and his children. He use it for his thirst for power. He makes a mockery of biblical marriage. He smears the picture of God's love and he therefore steals glory from God in order to serve his little Napoleonic kingdom. These men ought to be dealt with church. Yes, elders, we should deal with these men. And wife... Women, submission does not mean that if your husband is abusing you, that you let him give away with that. You call the authorities. And if he's failing and he's a tyrant in your home, then you drag his bottom before the session of this church. And you say, I need some men to deal with this guy. And as long as I'm pastor here, we will deal with him. we got to bring him to us. You can't say this is our private issue. You've got to bring it to to us, write a complaint, tell us about your husband. That's what the church is there for. That's the tyrannical husband. But there's also maybe more profoundly the apathetic husband. This is the one who fails to take up his role as leader. The apathetic husband is disengaged. He's cold. He's He's not very affectionate except when he can get something out of it. He's often selfish, detached. He doesn't pursue. He doesn't take responsibility as he ought to for the wife, for the children. Brothers and sisters, brothers in particular, we have lost our nerve. It's not necessarily worse today, by the way. We are not just little boys today. Man, we have struggled with this for all of time. You know, 100 years ago, almost 100 years ago, we passed the 18th Amendment in in this country. know what that was? That was the amendment banning alcohol. 100 years ago, when we were a great Christian nation... Men were just drunk, stumbling everywhere. So much so that two years before women even had the ability to vote, we actually got rid of alcohol. Because we were so wanting to escape our role in the home that we wouldn't go home, we we would go get alcohol. And we'd stay away. We gave up our role and responsibility. Now what do men do? We get drunk, but now we play video games. It's not very funny. We're addicted to them a fantasy world that we must escape to or our little hobbies. Apathy has been a problem from the beginning of sin. You know, this is Adam's issue, right? The first sin, we see that God calls Adam and says, this is your responsibility. God told him, it was Adam, he said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he was supposed to, he was supposed to care for his wife and protect his wife. And what do we see in the garden? The devil comes and tempts Eve and Adam is in the corner. She turns around and gives him an apple. He's there. He hears the temptation and what does he do? He does nothing. He is a passive, apathetic male. He is a weenie. And this is who men have often become. Ray Cortiz talks about this. But he asked the question, apathetic men, why do we lack security? What do apathetic men who lack security, what do they do? He says this, they hide. We do no good where we feel incompetent. We fear failure and rejection. We only give ourselves when we are sure it is safe. Did you hear that, men? We only give ourselves when we are sure it is safe. We retreat to self-protecting cartoons of sports and work and fishing and alcohol and exercise and our stupid buddies and our stupid hobbies. And too so often, man's best friend is his dog. Why do men love dogs? Chris Curtis asks. It's because a dog is always in cheerful and happy, and we don't have to work for it. Brothers, it's the same reason why we love pornography. You know Why? Because you don't have to lead. There's no risk in pornography. There's no baggage of responsibility. And so it's a way of escaping. Tyrants want their way, apathetic men want their space, and it kills our women. It just goes the very opposite of doing what the marriage relationship was supposed to be. These things are antithetical to biblical leadership. But we need a good word, don't we? Because you're probably feeling pretty beat up. Three callings. Three callings of things scripturally, what the Christ-like husband who lays down his life for his wife does. First, he commits unconditionally. The love of Christ for his church is an unconditional love, isn't it? God commits his love to us and he never takes it away. He says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. Jesus' love is never taken from us. And the travesty of divorce and the casualness of it, of husbands who run away from their home, is that then we are saying something theologically about God. We're saying that God stays in his relationship with us as long as we're good and meet our needs, meet his needs. The husband, the good husband, the husband who lays down his life, stays even when things are hard. God stays even when his bride disappoints him. And the good Christian husband stays when his wife gets sick. He doesn't bail. The husband stays when his wife is weak with a baby, when there's children in the home and life is physically tough and hard. He stays when his wife doesn't meet his physical intimacy needs. He stays when he has failed. Yes, this is why many men run away is they fail and in their insecurity, they run away from the marriage instead of facing the issues and saying, this is my problem, this is my responsibility, let's man up and let's deal with this issue. But instead they leave. The husband stays You know why the husband stays? Because he has promised to stay. This is what covenant is, right? It's a promise to stay. Andrew Peterson, who I love, he's a singer-songwriter, wrote this song entitled Dancing in the Minefields, It's a song about marriage, and he says this in the refrain over and over and over again. And we went dancing in the minefields. That's his description of marriage. We went sailing in the storms, and it was harder than we dreamed. But I believe that's what the promise is for. The promise is not when everything is just great. The promises when it's difficult and yes, even when you're failing as a husband and your wife tells you so and you have to look yourself in the mirror and say, I'm going to get up today and I'm going to move towards my wife. It's the promises for when your wife is failing you. When she isn't giving you this respect that you quote unquote deserve. When she's being an unworthy spouse and you say, no, no, I'm going to move towards my wife. I'm going to love her anyways. The Christ-like husband stays. Second, the Christ-like husband pursues and he initiates. The love of Christ compels God to pursue us. We have an initiating God. And the Christ-like husband does the same thing. He pursues with abandon, with courage, and with boldness. Ephesians 5 says the husband nourishes and cherishes his wife. Inherent to both those words is a movement towards your wife. You cannot nourish and cherish your wife unless you move towards her. And the whole Bible is a story of God's initiating work, his pursuit of us, a people who are not worthy of it, but he comes after us anyways. Adam and Eve, right after they sin, what does God do? He comes into the garden and he calls out for them and he searches for them. He initiates with a lost Adam. He says, he says that Jesus came to seek and save the lost He comes to Saul and makes him Paul. When Saul is persecuting Christians and running away from God, he pursues him. He is initiating God. He goes after unfaithful Jonah across the oceans and into the sea to get Jonah. To be the head does not mean you're more intelligent, you're smarter, or more emotionally stable. It means, men, that you are the pursuer and the one who says, I take responsibility. The husband takes an initiative to lead spiritually and financially, and yes, romantically, brothers. We complain so often, my wife, she doesn't initiate intimacy with me. It's your job. Get off the couch and woo your wife. You're the pursuer and the initiator. And by by, by the way, good leadership does not mean that you initiate by just complaining about issues in the home. See, I've learned this, this is one of the things I've learned as having to lead a church, is that those, good leaders are those who don't only just point out problems, but then they actually say, I'll take responsibility for the issue, and I'm going to come up with solutions. Husbands, you are not being a good leader when you point to your wife and say, look at this problem. Would you do something about this? The good husband, the leader husband who pursues and initiates says, this is a problem, and guess whose responsibility is? Mine, my responsibility. It's my responsibility to take up our kids. If one is running away, I'm going to go get him. If we're struggling financially, I'm going to oversee it. I'm going to care for my family. The problems in our household are my responsibility. When Adam and Eve sinned, does God come looking for Eve? No, he says, Adam, 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 it's your responsibility, brother. So take up the responsibility. The husband initiates repentance. Man, aren't you tired of things being your fault in the home? Aren't you tired of always having, being the one who apologizes? Repent first. I'm so tired of having to be the one. It's like, all right, I'll repent again first. You poor babies. Once again, that is your job to prevent, repent first. Pursue and initiate. Husbands, you got a problem with your marriage, go to counseling. And it doesn't mean you drag your wife there. It means I am the problem here. And even if my wife won't go, I'm going to go. I'm going to address this. Good soldiers lead what? From the back? No, good soldiers lead from the front, brothers. Be a good soldier. Be a good husband. Third, Christ-like husband, sacrificially serve. Love your wife as Christ loves the church. And what does Jesus do for his church? He dies for his church. The husband dies. The good husband, the Christ-like husband dies for his family. He doesn't make his family die for him. The good husband says, my wife has watched the kids all week. Saturday mornings are not mine to go hunting. I'm going to die to myself to give myself to my family. The finances are for my family's good, not for my trinkets and toys. I'm going to die for my family. Headship is the authority to serve. John Stott beautifully says it. He says, if headship means power in any sense, then it is the power to care not to crush, power to serve, not to dominate, power to facilitate self-fulfillment, not frustrate or destroy it. And in all this, the standard of the husband's love is to be the cross of Christ on which Jesus surrendered himself even to death in his selfless love for his bride. The sacrificial husband lays down his life. Is that your paradigm for marriage? Recently I saw 30 for 30, it was a great example of this, of a husband who laid down his wife for his wife 30 for 30 ESPN's documentaries about sports figures. It's called The Gospel of According to Mac. It's about Coach Bill McCartney, who uh, was a significant coach in the college football scene in the 80s and 90s. His Colorado Buffaloes won the national championship in the early 1990s. But he was sitting in church one Sunday. He, McCartney's also known for starting promise keepers as well, if you're familiar with that ministry for men. But he, he, he was sitting in church one Sunday in which a guest preacher came in and said this. He said, I can tell a great deal about a man's character by looking at the countenance of his wife. Now, that may or may not be true, but Milton McCartney took it as true, and he looked over at his wife, and what he saw was this. He said, he saw in his, in his wife the face of a woman who had been drained of her joy and vitality and splendor by a husband who expected her to always to follow his dreams and his ambitions, to express his repentance and obedience. Here's what he did. He gave up his coaching career the end of that year he said that's it I'm done and it wasn't to go start promise keepers it was so he could dedicate his life to serving his wife he gave down his ambition he laid him down to give his life for his wife this is what the Christ like husband does with the goal of seeing his wife beautiful and radiant before God brothers I want you to see that both men and women though play this role of Jesus in our marriage right it's not just the man that plays the role of Jesus both of us Reveal some aspect of, of Jesus' work. You see, Jesus revolutionizes the role of submission. Serving through subordination. Jesus also revolutionizes the role of leadership by serving by dying. Brothers and sisters, here's what de- marriage is. It is death. It is death to self so that your spouse may have life. Radiant, glorious life. The problem, though, is this, isn't it? Here's the paradigm that so many of us have. I will give my life to my spouse, but only to the degree that they are giving their life for me. That's called compromise. It's stupid. That's what what modern psychology would tell you. if you just find a way to compromise in your marriage. That's exactly what that is. You know what? Marriage, Christian marriage, is not compromise, but I give myself 100% for the life of my spouse. Too often, though, the, the power we have is, is we just take it from our spouse, and it's just this little game of ping pong. We need to find power for our marriage from elsewhere, outside of our marriage. And where do we get that power? Where do we get the power in order to love someone with our whole life? You can't do it unless you've been loved like that. Brothers and sisters, you have, Right? You have you have received spousal like love. One of the great pictures of God's love for us in the in the Bible is that God is the groom and we are His bride. God has a marriage to His church. God says he doesn't want to simply relate to us as king to citizens or as father to children or shepherd to sheep, but as a husband is to his wife. Hosea, he says this, in that day declares the Lord, you will no longer call me master, you will call me lover and husband. He's in the middle of it, in the middle of his Bible, he's got a whole book about the love between God and his people. It's called the Song of Solomon. Isaiah, even as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. But here's the issue, we've been a very unfaithful bride, haven't we? You know what? Did you know that God does not have a good marriage? You think you have a bad marriage. God has the wife from hell. (laughs) Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, God calls his his wife a whore. He does. that she has prostituted herself. That's not a good marriage. It's not a good marriage. And that's exactly so often that's the story of our lives and our marriage to God that the problem with us is that we have run after lovers so less wild. less beautiful. We have satisfied ourselves and other things. And in fact, in many ways, we have looked to marriage as the lover that will satisfy our soul. And frankly, it can't. And if you look to it for that, it will crush you. And it will crush your marriage. Too often, too many of you, because marriage is the idol of your life, you've jumped into it too quickly. Because you thought it was going to give you happiness that only God could give you. For many of you, you won't get married because you're afraid of making commitment. Because marriage to you is such a big deal, I have to find the perfect person. And if I don't find the perfect person, it's going to ruin me. I'm not going to have joy in my life. And then there, there it goes. No, you've got to find joy in Jesus, and then you can settle. <laughs> you can settle. You can have a, a realistic approach to marriage that knows I'm going to go in, and I'm going to marry this wonderful person who's also deeply flawed and deeply broken. For some of you, you're killing your marriage because it's an idol, because you're putting the weight of it that only their marriage to Jesus can handle. But you do have spousal love. You do have a marriage, to, to the love to feed into your soul so you can give out 100% to your spouse. Did you know? Wouldn't it be great in all this conversation about marriage that if Jesus had given us a great example? You know, the liberal theologians think, think that Jesus had a, got married. Would it would it be nice, right, to give us the perfect example of what marriage looked like. That would be so great. But you see, Jesus didn't get married because he was coming for a bride. And the bride is you. Bride is you, and what did it cost for, for you to become his bride? See, marriage is an interesting thing, right? When you're brought into marriage, there's this there's this this arrangement, this thing that happens when you when you marry someone, you become responsible for all of their assets and liabilities, don't you? You wed your life together. When I got married, man, I, my my assets went way up, way up. Our first date, our first date, I spent over twenty percent of my total net worth on our date. When we got married, when we got married, I was driving a, a, a stick shift Saturn with holes in the seats. My wife was driving a red convertible with sweet wheels and awesome tinting and a spoiler and a bad sound system. I got my wife's assets. It was really great for me. What assets of yours did Jesus get when he married you? All he got was your liabilities, but you got all his assets. He took all their sins, and you got all his blessings. And what did it take to bring that about? He had to die. He had to twist his life to make to, to, to make you his. One final illustration, we'll close. I share this at all my weddings. So those of you that I've married, you've already heard this. Those of you that come to the weddings have already heard this illustration. But Seizer, Sizer, who is a surgeon... Says the most memorable thing you ever saw as a surgeon was fall, a pre-op appointment with a young white woman who, it, who was recently married, and she had to go in and have her tumor removed from her face. And during the course of the surgery, in order to remove the tumor, it had grown into various places, and they had to sever a facial nerve. And her face, as they peeled off the, the, um, the bandages, her face was contorted into a palsy, and it was always going to be there. And there, so she sees here in the mirror, she sees how her face has been distorted and twisted, and, and she asks the doctor, is this how my face is always going to look? And he says, yes, yes it is. She blushes and tears into her eyes, and she looks away, but then immediately looks up to her husband. But her husband, her loving husband, is quick to act. He rushes towards her, and he says, I think it looks beautiful. And there with her eyes open, as her husband reached down to give her a kiss, she saw how he had to twist his face in order to connect with her lips. Your Savior had to have his body twisted, had to twist, had to come down from heaven itself in order to make you his, simply so he could take all of your liabilities and give you all his assets. To the degree that you understand that and live into that and find fuel and power in that, you can give yourself to your spouse day in and day out. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, this is too much for us. We confess. Frankly, the sermon was too long. But Lord, then there's just too much information. And this task of, of giving of dying, Lord, this task of dying. Lord, of pouring our love out for another person. It's too much for us. You ask too much for us, Lord. We need your help. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that each man and woman in here. Would be embraced and experience the spousal love of Jesus, who perfectly shows us what it looks like to submit and to lead. But may we see how He submits and He leads for our good. And in being filled up by that, go in and reach our wives. Lord Jesus, I pray that I pray against the temptation this morning as we walk out of here to go and have conversations that the devil would seek to destroy. Conversations where husband and wives look at each other and confess their sins. But the devil would seek to twist that. Lord, I pray that we would not leave this room thinking about, oh, look at that. Look at all the ways that my spouse could be better. But Lord, instead we would say, Lord, may you enable me and empower me to lay my life down for my spouse. To repent where I have been weak, where I have failed her. And to restore my marriage into the Christ-like gospel reenactment picture it's supposed to be. We ask this by the power of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.